Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we delve into the life, faith and ministry of Christians in the public eye. Today, my guest is Dr. Rosemary Mallet, Bishop of Croydon. Before becoming a Church of England priest, Dr. Rosemary was an academic specialising in international development and mental health. After ordination in 2005, she served for many years in Brixton, where she earned the nickname Angel of Brixton for her work on one of London's most deprived estates. She's the diocesan lead on racial justice and produced Southwark's anti-racism charter in 2021. Rosemary, welcome to the show. Hello, it's good to be with you, Megan. On the profile, Rosemary, we'd like to to sort of go back a bit and, and talk about our guest's early life. Uh, I understand you were born in Barbados, is that true? I'm a very, very proud Bajan. Yes, I'm <laughs> born, in, born in Barbados, came over here as a young child. So I think, not I think, I know I qualified to be a Windrusher also. Were your parents on... The, on Windrush. No, no. What the what the government's done recently, as they considered who are part of the Windrush, it isn't just those who came over on the boat. Mm. It's that period of time where people um, came over here. I think with an idea and an understanding that they were coming for a short while and then they would return. So it kind of takes us to around the late 60s when people started to send for their children, recognising that they weren't going to be returning back to the Caribbean and that they were going to make their lives in this country. So I was one of the left behind children who then arrived in the late 60s to join my mother and my stepfather. What were your early memories of Barbados? My early memories were one of family, uh, sunshine. Um, we were we had a small holding as a family, so that meant that we had sh- uh, sheep, a couple of cows, definitely a donkey. Um, my grandfather had a small holding, and he worked on a plantation. And I have a memory of walking behind him the donkey cart as he was collecting cane to carry up to the plantation so it's very much a, a vivid memory um for me I suppose a sense of openness and space and freedom um to play to be we were extremely poor um as a family despite having a a small holding which many people did in that day also so I was brought up and born in and brought up in what was called a chattel house um and you've heard the phrase chattel slavery and it's very connected because it's a small house that you could literally pack up and put on the back of a cart if you were told in a rush to get off the land you never owned the land but you owned the house. And so it's a chattel house. So you had your goods and chattels in it and you could literally um, unpick the boards. You see these wooden houses in the Caribbean. And so you could unpick the boards and then move them to another plot and and then build it elsewhere. Just kind of a little bit of unpicking people's lives and moving them to another place. And then they had to build that life elsewhere. Do you know much about your family history? Um, I mean, our family... Um, is very much of that slave um, trajectory. Um, But we've also, like many Caribbean people, got a little bit of European somewhere in our family on my grandmother's side, not my grandfather's side. For us as a family, it's always intriguing because we're the only family with the mallet name in Barbados. And Barbados, like England, has some of those key names. You know, here you have Smith, you have Clark. We have those names in Barbados as well, obviously, through the plantation culture, but there's only one um, Mallet family in Barbados and there's one family in St. Lucia and one family in Antigua. So we think it was uh, possibly a very small plantation owner who um, gave that name to a very small plantation um, in those territories. But I've never had time to go back and um, and, and try to understand uh, you know what those links are but very much um we know from um my um, aunt telling me we very much know about the links back to our local plantation um which is close to where i was born which is the bell plantation I was born very close to that and that's what the family worked on and then when they came out of slavery lived very close to and that was very much part of as i said my grandfather still taking uh cane Uh, back up to the plantation um, for it to be ground uh, to make sugar or rum. 
So what were some of the stories that you heard growing up with with that sort of um, horrific kind of history and past? What, what, what were the sort of the folklore and the stories that were told in your family? How did it how did it affect your sense of identity and your understanding of some of those structures like racism and institutional racism? How has that impacted you? I think um, very much in Barbados, it's very odd as the way I reflect on these things going backwards, because in my family, I, I alluded to the fact that we had some European in our family. Now, Barbados as an, an island was very much governed by the British and lived in by the British. So there wasn't a lot of mixing between colours. The colour bar was quite high um, in Barbados. And 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 that was interesting in the way in which the, the, the country developed um, with regard to the white plantocracy and the um, slaves, servant, plantation workers, uh, black members. But we had some white family who were poor white, as we call them in Barbados. So people who came to Barbados as indentured laborers themselves, maybe as overseers, couldn't fit into the plantocracy, but very much um, didn't want to also marry into or live with the, the black poor people, though some did. And so some of us in Barbados have the links through having been connected to that poor white background. And that's certainly my grandmother's background is coming out of family who are poor white. So as a child growing up, I remember seeing some of our white um, family members in the yard as such. So it was a bit odd because we didn't often go into town. You know, children didn't do those kind of things in those days. But when we were playing in and around, we would see uh, some of these definitely poor they were not rich at all. Poor members of our white family who would also come to join to visit or we would go to visit them. So although I had a very much understanding of the structure of society in that it was very top down hierarchical with the white plantocracy and the poor black people, somewhere in between there, I also had knowledge that not all white people are rich um, and not all white people fit into that plantocratic um, backgrounds and, and so I kind of knew that that was something I knew as a concept um, and so when I arrived in this country it was the first time really and truly that my colour became a problem because growing up you know you grow up amongst yourselves and so you're not a problem because you don't see the plantocracy and you see these poor white folk go to school with black people. So when I arrived in this country at the age of seven and I started to go to school here, it was then pointed out to me by my school um, colleagues that my color was a problem because I was black and therefore I was not as good as the white uh, members of, of the school. And of course, I hadn't had that as a lived reality. I'd only known about it because of knowing about the rich white people who sat in church in pretty clothes and you know were well away from us um and when I was younger I think the, the vicar the priest would have been white when I was younger but as I say white people didn't occupy much of our our physical space and our children thinking space and so it was only when I arrived in the UK that the color differentiation started to really occupy my thinking space and the way in which then I received who I was. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So so were these sort of racist comments that people made in class? Was it signs that, you know, because I know that there were sort of very racist sort of signs that were put up in shops at that time, you know, saying no dogs, no Irish, no blacks, you know, things like that. Were they, was it all around you? Can, can you give us a sort of a sense of what you were experiencing when you arrived in the UK? So, I mean, arriving... I would say to folk, it's was fascinating when you arrived in the UK back in those days. Um, I, I'm old enough to know that there was something before BA called BOAC. I arrived as a child with a little sign around my neck because uh, I came alone and the police uh, policeman had to pick me up and take me to my mother um, at the airport. And then we arrived um, uh, by coach into a very depressing and horrible looking place called Coventry. Um, and it just had no sea. It was grey. It was just winter into spring, and and it smelt horrible. And everyone talks about the row houses where you just couldn't understand why all these houses were stuck together. Because I'd come from a house small though it was, but independent and and detached, as one might say. 
So that was, um, and then my mother had difficulty in getting me into a school at first, um, though you wouldn't hear it in the way I'm speaking to you. But my Barbadian accent was so strong that one of the schools said I wouldn't fit in. Um, And then she got me into a Church of England um, primary school. And while I was at that school, um, I do remember that the uh, one particular white member of of the class was extremely offensive and um, rude uh, with regard to his comments towards me. But actually, it wasn't just the white members. I remember my um, Indian uh, class members reminding me that I was uh, I was black and that I was using words which we uh, wouldn't use at all today, but reminding me that I was different, that I was black. and that therefore I needed to know my place. And that was very, very um, clear um, uh, told to me. So it was in the class um, and, that, and, 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 and you, you lived with it and you had to fight, fight your way, fight your corner. But I was saying to someone, I do remember things like, so when you're playing in the playground, you notice who plays with who who gets excluded from certain games. Um, and and quite often, you know, I was on the outside of the games um, that were being played. It got more pronounced um, as I got into my teenage years. Um, I think my brother said, even though I noticed things because I was young, um, they kind of could go over my head because I just got on with learning and I loved learning. But when I went to secondary school, then it became, I was the only black um, of African heritage, African Caribbean heritage in the class. So then it became quite pronounced that I was different. Um, I got on well with uh, some people without a problem. Um, but I remember going with my best friend from my um, primary school, who was a white girl called Carol. And she took me at 13. My mother said, you can go. So we went along to the um, social club, her family social club, uh, dance, disco for um, teenagers. And my mother said, I don't think they're going to let you in. My brother said, I don't think they're going to let you in. Anyway, I went off with her because she was my best friend. And we got to the door and they looked at me and they told her, you can come in. Your black friend can't. And uh, she said, well, she's not that black. Can she come in? And they said, it doesn't matter how dark she is. She's black. She can't come in. And if you stay with her, you can't come in either. So off we trailed um, back home to explain what happened um, to my parents. And that I remember that very distinctly. Never mind the things that happened at school. But, you know, as a teenager, you start to think, oh, discos and things like that. And you suddenly got told that because of your skin colour, you were not um, you were not included. You were not allowed to be um, to go to go to um, an activity with someone who was your best friend and wanted to protect you. It was that feeling of somebody having to almost, you know, buy my way in by diminishing my skin colour to hope that they would kind of say, oh, well, she's she's kind of brownish. She's not really that dark. So, we, you know, she can come in. And I'm so thankful that in all that kind of wheedling trying to get me in, it didn't happen because I think at that time that definitely set my course in terms of, my identity and the things that then started to impinge larger in my life about injustice and racial injustice. Mm. Yeah, let's talk a bit about that, because that must have a really profound effect on a young child, you know, to to have that sort of hostility and that animosity towards you just for the way you look. Um, Mm. Tell me a bit about how that's impacted your identity and your sense of self. Well, one of the things I started to do around that time was get very interested because I was always a bookworm. But I got very interested in what was happening in the United States, partly because there were things on the television that were talking about a group called the Black Panthers. And we would watch the news avidly and always looking to find out what was happening around the lives of black people in the United Kingdom in as much as it was reported, and certainly what was reported in the, in, in the United States of America. So we were seeing all this information. We'd heard, obviously, of Martin Luther King. We'd heard of uh, Malcolm X. 
and we'd followed their stories. We were very proud of people like Muhammad Ali. So we've always very keen as a household to look for the areas where black people were flourishing and very proudly. But we'd also look and my stepfather would talk to me about the areas where we were struggling or suffering or facing difficulties. And, and clearly in America, there was um, then very much a dichotomy between what was happening as they were trying to achieve civil rights, um, things that people in this country could actually do, black people could do, like vote. Um, we were starting to realize just how bad it was there. So I got very involved, uh, very strangely, in in the socialist worker um, movement, because they were they were working in a way for, for, for justice and racial justice. So somebody came to the door and started talking about it and I got involved. And I remember going and saying to my, to my stepfather, can I use my pocket money to buy the newspaper? And so I got politicized by seeing what was happening with regard to injustice in America. At the same time, my own brothers, I have two elder brothers and one younger sister, but my brothers, particularly my eldest brother, was facing quite a lot of, of racism, um, street racism um, from skinheads, etc. in Coventry. There was a lot of challenges and problems there around racism. So we were feeling it as a family as well in terms of what was happening to my brother. So I was intellectually connected to what was happening in the United States and civil rights movement. And we as a family were feeling our way through the challenges that my own brother and other people like him were, were facing. So it became very much part of who I am and what I was living um, mm. at that time. So- were you able to make those links then, um, Rosemary, between the personal lived experience and, like you say, the the sort of the institutional racism that you could see in society were you making those connections at that age? I, I Very much so, because obviously we have what was happening to me. My brothers would say that was quite nothing compared to what was happening to them. But we also, for an instance, knew one of my cousins came up from the Caribbean, came up later than me, and he had a stammer. And because he had a stammer and couldn't really express himself and with his accent, he was put into one of those educationally subnormal classes. So we knew there was nothing wrong with him, but he was assigned as educationally subnormal simply because the teachers couldn't understand him. So when these things are happening around you to members of your family, you start to realise that it's, yes, you're facing significant challenges. And the other thing for me was I was very good educationally. So I wasn't being dumbed down. I was in my class being enabled to flourish. I was given by my family, my parents, books to help me read and to learn and to grow and develop and support to do that. And my teachers really got behind me, perhaps because I was the only black person in the classroom. So it was easier, perhaps because I was very good. Um, very intellectually, educationally, very good. So they certainly got behind me and supported me. So I didn't feel that I personally was being dragged back by the system. I felt the system was enabling me to find my level and 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 to and to flourish at school. So school for me, quite honestly, was was just a wonder place to go to uh, because I could learn more and and you know and but I was making those links of what was happening, as I say in regard to my family, I was making the links for what was regarding to the US. What I have to say is we didn't have a lot of information about what was happening in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So, so that really, I couldn't see structurally what was happening there. But then, you know, my stepfather, who was really the one who, who was very intellectual in these things, would explain to me the kind of jobs that only Black people would be able to get, the fact that some people uh, were having to pursue careers lesser than their capacities because they were never given the opportunity when they came over to step into the roles that they'd played before they came over. So we kind of that was that was swirling around as part of um, how I how I grew and how I developed. Yeah. 
Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit about your your personal faith journey. Um, It sounds like you came from a Christian family. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you grew up in church. And at what point did did faith sort of become your own in that sense? Well, in the Caribbean, we, um, we, you know, you went to church. You, I remember I've got images of walking with my cousins um, and my brothers through the cane fields um, in our in my white dress, my white socks, my white shoes and my little what we call in Barbados a pocketbook. I used to be called that in Elizabethan times here with my little pocketbook with a handkerchief in it and feeling very beautiful and proud. Um, came over to Britain and joined the church as you would do. I remember that was one of the things was my father didn't go to church and um, my mother did a bit, but not um, consistently because she worked nights as a nurse and often came home too tired to go to church on a Sunday, but the children had to go. So that was just institutionally part of who we were. Um, For me, slowly that church space became, I think as I became more and more political, the church space became less and less welcoming, you know, less and less feeling like I had a presence to be there. so and my brothers, you know, stopped going quite soon. I was, you know, the girls brigade. Um, we, we, we did all of all of that. Um, but I wouldn't say that I got a personal feeling of my own faith until in the teenage years. Quite often um, you struggle with your identity apart from your racial identity, but you just study, you, you, you struggle with trying to define who you are. And in my struggle, or coming to a sense of what the world had in store for me, I found that I leaned very heavily um, on on the Psalms. And and I found that whenever I was in a distress uh, and unable to really see the way forward, I would just walk backwards into Psalm 27. And, and, And that, the Lord is my salvation, that would just hold me when I thought that things were going wrong so crazily around me. I would just, yeah, I was, I would, the word for me is to rest. I would rest in Psalm 27 and that would just give me solace and sustenance and telling me to wait for the Lord. He will be there. And that just helped me in so many of those difficult space times to just say, well, you know what? There is something coming for tomorrow. There is something coming for tomorrow. And so it wasn't church, you know, the institution of church that we create, you know, the doing and the being, the things that we become part of. But actually, it was my my faith in in Jesus Christ as he who would be waiting for me and he whom in whom I could I could rest and he and he whom is my salvation. So although it came from the Psalms, it looked very much to the person of Jesus Christ as being the answer to that psalm so that's my faith it's interesting that you say you sort of almost rejected the the sort of religious elements of of faith and you know that you cultivated this personal faith in Jesus um, and yet you chose ordination as your path um in life so how how did that how did that come about I'm going to just connect to that word chose I was chosen I was chosen I, as you said in the introduction, I was an academic for a very long part of my life. And in fact, when I went to university, I went to one of the most, at that time, radical universities in this country, which was Sussex University. And so there are very few people, well, I didn't know them, who went to church on a Sunday or any of the other days because we spent most of our time campaigning or going out on marches or whatever else. I was very, very, very political. Um, and so I really rejected the the institution of church because as I learned more about the way in which the church had walked together um, with colonialism, with imperialism, with um, chattel slavery, I became so disconnected from any kind of institution that could have been part of 
my forebears journey of pain and so I could find anything about church as an institution that really enabled me to to want to be part of it um and and that was that way for a while but my personal faith I, I still felt very connected and so I could I could do that dichotomous thing of saying I follow Jesus I don't need a church I moved and lived in Tanzania um for for a few years um as part of my academic journey and and there I I I met um a wonderful I had a couple of experiences but I met a wonderful um nun uh, a Filipino nun and she was working uh, at, at the university as an academic but as a nun also so as an embedded um faith um worker using her faith to 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 bring about uh, education to enable education to look at social justice issues, the group, the order that she was part of, looked at social justice issues and worked with local people to really engender that sense of of social justice. And I just stopped and I thought, there must be something about the institution working collaboratively, not just as me and my faith, but actually go back to the Bible, go back to the scriptures, go back to Jesus calling his church into being and looking at what that church should be like, not what it is like, and seeing if I could find a way in to play a part in bringing about the church that Jesus called into being. That is a church that where everybody is loved and reflects the, 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 the beauty and the wonder of, of, of the creator and where there's a place for everyone. Um, every, every part of the body has a role to play and is loved and respected. And I, and I kind of got to the point where I said, do you know what? I should be part of doing that rather than sitting outside and critiquing it. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective, balanced, relevant. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church, wherever you live, however you worship. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. Now only £5 for three months. You know, as you said, you had to uh, grapple with all of the difficult things that the church had done and and been involved in. You know, we, we know a bit more now about... Um, the investments that the church made in in um, the South Sea Company, which, you know, which transported slaves. Um, so that must have been quite a difficult decision for you. Uh, how did you how did you process that? And, and how did you almost sort of pray through that? The, for me, the important thing was having made the decision that there was a role that I could play in enabling this organization this structure that had been so destructive um that i could find a way to i call it help to repair the breach that i could be part of that and once i'd made that decision you know then i wanted to invest in it and the only way i could invest in it was by deep deep prayer and 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 finding my way where jesus the spot to where jesus could actually then literally almost stand with me and said and it is to this that you have been called and 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 so how I did that was I when I returned to the United Kingdom I found a church I have to say the first church I found while it was within a tradition I was familiar with it felt alienating and I still didn't feel like I belonged in it but I didn't give up because I'd met people beyond that church that I was attending who were more of an ilk of me. I'd, at that time, I'd met a racial justice officer for the Diocese of Southwark who was like an extended family member. So I knew that there were people working in the diocese who had this important work of racial justice. I'd met um, an American Episcopalian woman who talked to me about the the way in which the Episcopal Church was undertaking its ministry and the fact that there were looser structures of church than what I was experiencing. So both of them said to me, if it doesn't fit, and people may know this song, don't force it. 
don't stay there. Just relax. Go find somewhere else and God will place you where he wants you to be. And so that's what I did. I spent two years being faithful to that place. And then I I wrote to the vicar and I said, I'm not comfortable here. I can't feel myself in this space. And so I found another church. And as soon as I arrived, the, the moment I arrived, the welcome was overwhelming. And the engagement of the folk was was just wonderful. Hospitality, opening my mind, involving me um, in as, as part of who the church was and is. And um, I got confirmed, um, I, you know, from that church. Um, it, you know, as, as Anglicans, you know, I was baptized, but not confirmed. So I didn't want to be confirmed in the churches of when I was a teenager. So I got confirmed in this church as a, as a, in my middle ages, as they would say. And the joy, the joy of, I can still feel the joy of my confirmation. Tomorrow I will be confirming um, seven candidates, some of whom are teenagers and some of whom are more in their later years, some of whom are probably in their 60s. So I can feel that experience of standing up and saying to the world, this is my faith. And, 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 I, and it was because of that church, they gave me that confidence, that love, that sense of being part of God's movement, that then I, I felt I could take that step and say, right, yes, thank you, God. I am part of your, your, your church um, and I want to do whatever I can through my confirmation vows to build your kingdom. So it was very powerful and I still remember it very much now. Thank God for that church. That's all I can say. Talking, uh, you know, talking about racism again, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury has publicly repented um, and he's also created a fund, a £100 million fund to address past wrongs. So that's specifically historic links to slavery. Do you think the church has gone far enough in terms of repairing the damage that has been done? I don't think it's gone far enough. And I've said this publicly but I do think that we're all on a journey and we don't know what far enough is at this point in time. So they have made a significant step forward um, in terms of recognising the past sin, repenting of the past sin, and then putting in place a process for action to, to, to move us from where we are. That will help us do some of that work of repairing. And it is as we do the work of repairing, because not everyone will be able to feel connected to that sense of that the repentance has gone to this particular level. I know that at the moment that there are talk of reparations and what do reparations look like? Are reparations, you know, this financial settlement, which it is not enough, um, with regard to the amount of money that was received in people are saying, well, it's a drop in the ocean as to what you've got. So you're only giving back this proportion and it's not sufficient. But for me, it's not just about money. It's about creating a a legacy where those who know themselves or feel themselves to be part of the Church of England find space within it for their full reflection as members of the kingdom and it's how do we ensure that we do that so that's not just about creating a fund that gives out some money but it's actually building a real platform and basis for the way in which we engage um, going forward with all people uh, a diverse people and I think tell you the honest truth I think this is just one of the examples of the way in which we work to expand God's wonderful diversity. So we're working on the issue of of, of repentance for slavery because it was such a major wrong that was done to a, a, a whole people. But we in the church and human people are just so very good at othering, at marginalising, and at excluding. We, it's, you know, race is a huge factor, but we, we do it in so many other ways also. And if we can use this mechanism 
from lament to action to enable us to be a better church, a more listening church, a more engaged church, a more hospitable and welcoming church for all who want to find their way to the doors of the church. If we can use this as an exemplar for that bigger picture, I would be thankful. So for the money, well, I'm glad they've understood that they need to repent and that they also need to find ways to repay. But what I feel and I know that what they want to do so much is about not just a a, a moment of time now with the money, but what is the legacy of that? What is the investment going to be? Because what we do know is that because of the, the way in which people were ripped out of Africa, that has had so much of a, a knock-on effect for the countries where they came from and the places where they went to. And racism, this bi- binary of black and white, was born out of slavery. So now out of that, we have to find a way to deconstruct this racism, Mm. this whiteness, this blackness that we have constructed as positive and negative. We have to find the way back from that. And if this this small amount of money enables us to look more truly, more transparently, and to find ways to walk forward to now invest out of the pain, out of the pain, to invest forwards so that those coming will know that the people who we are today have built a platform for them to be the best that they can be as God wants them to be. Mm. And do you see that mainly in terms of um, social justice in the sense of sort of economic progress and um opportunities for people uh or do you see it more in terms of christians joining groups like black lives matter and and a sort of activist approach how how do you actually bring about this change i think it's both i think it's both i think we've got to work at the theological level um so that's the, the 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 thinking and the being we've got to understand ourselves better we've really got to deepen our understanding of how scripture has been used to to create this 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 binary um racism and so we've got to do that work and at the same time we've got to to be out there um in the world making the difference so whether it's joining the protest of black lives matter or whether as it was on saturday joining in with the the um the climate justice um, um, protests, some people will choose to do that. That's how they live out um, their understanding of social justice. Some people will, will, will work on it academically because it is the academic work, it's the theorizing and theologizing that enables us to, to learn and to know and to grow from it. So it can't all be doing It has to be both that sense of learning and growing and then being and then doing. Our Lord was always on the road. I always say to people, where did you find Jesus? You found him on the road. But then when he stopped, you found him in prayer. And when he wasn't um, praying, he was teaching. And when he wasn't teaching, he was healing. So we need to be in all those spaces because we need to bring about healing. And part of the healing can, will be through the way in which we engage people, meet them where they are, and how we build the resources for teaching so that we can all better understand as we learn and grow together. But we know that we've also got to be on the road. We've got to be out there. We've got to be engaged with where um, we see injustice. We've got to be engaged with, with, with bringing about justice because that's what Jesus tells us we must do. But at every point in time, we have to turn as Jesus does. We have to stop. We have to pray and we have to ask our our Lord to just nourish us, to nurture us, to be alongside us and to guide us, you know, with all the wisdom and the grace and the mercy. So we can't do it unless we put that all together holistically. So I wouldn't say it's one or the other. And some of us are great at being on the road. And just like Paul's analogy of the body, let them go forth. 
let them go forth. But at the same time, let's also produce the materials that will help them to also explain why it's so important that we do what we do. As you know, Rosemary, this year is the 75th anniversary of Windrush. What does what does Windrush 75 mean for you? What a big number, 75. Gosh, you know, um, you think as you grow up in life that your grandparents, um, they get to those ages and they hold the wisdom of your family um, in your lives for you. And I think of all those people who came over on that boat um, not knowing what the world was going to hold for them, but with a sense of hope and a bit of a destiny. They were going to go there and do something amazing, build up the mother country and then come back and build up their own communities and grow their families. So there was all this sense of you know joy and, and, and expectation. And then what they found in so many instances was knockbacks and rejection and marginalisation and um, and they had to fight through that with tremendous resilience and they stayed and they built. This is also the 75th anniversary of the National Health Service. And we cannot think of the National Health Service without thinking of the diversity and the amazing ways in which um, people from, from the Caribbean and people from diverse backgrounds have been part of the building up of that institution as well. So I look at, you know, the transport systems in this country. I look at the National Health Service. I look at so much which has been, which has, which has benefited because um, those folk came over and were part of a movement of people that came and have been part of the development of who we are as a society today. So I look back with pride, but I also recognise as I look back into slavery, the costliness to them, the amount of racism that so many of them faced and the challenges that their their children faced when they came here. It wasn't an easy space. So when I look back to the way in which they tried to then raise their children to be the best that they could be, recognising the terrain that they had to raise those children in. And I and I we come to 75 and I look back and I recognise um, that many of those folk still struggle, not the large majority, but some of them still struggle through the Windrush scandal because they still haven't got their paperwork sorted out because they still they were the ones persecuted in their older years and told that they had no place in this country you know i have a brother who at one point was told because of the passport and he hadn't sorted his paperwork out that he too might be asked to leave this country so it's also very personal people who had lived their lives in the age of four and six and and longer suddenly being told that you're not welcome here anymore so that's still somehow in the ether so as we mark this time of celebration of those folk who have done so much to build a platform, we recognise that like the sword that pierces Mary's heart, that there's still a sword going through um, this generation of Windrushers. And we've got so much more work to do to right the wrongs of the scandal, to recognise the contributions of these amazing pe- people and to build a legacy and a platform going forward where no one else will um, going forward feel that they are unwelcome, that they are to be marginalised and that there is any hint of them being told that this place is not your home. I mean, it is shocking, isn't it, when you think that the the people coming over on, on the boat, on Windrush, were British subjects. They were... They, you know, we didn't have citizenship laws at that time. They were British. They, they were part of the colonies. They they were asked to come over, right. you know. So it's it's just, it's really shocking, isn't it, when you think about the way that they their descendants have been treated. Um, and then also the fact that the, that the compensation scheme hasn't been properly administered. So people are still not receiving the compensation uh, they deserve for the terrible things that have happened, deportations, um, loss of livelihoods because they didn't have the paperwork. Um, I mean, it's just awful. 
and and it's um and that's why I say that you know we're very good at um having and that's the church and the, and the and the nation we're very good at having celebrations or services to mark a point in time as you know and and then we come together and we we sing songs and we say wonderful words and it's all really wonderful in terms of clapping clapping people on their back to say well done good and faithful servant but actually we need to recognize that while we want to sell to those people well done I do want to say that because of their resilience they have got us to where we are I am where I am because of them without a shadow of a doubt but I know that for many some of them still justice has not been done and for their children and their children's children justice has not been done and that's why we've got to do this work and that's why leaping into the racial justice work of the church of england it's important that we take these 75 years and ensure that that's located into our understanding of what we are about when we say we want to invest um in the future and we want to bring about racial justice in the church and in our wider society Talking of racial justice in our wider society, you know, recently there's been a lot of talk in the media about the Met Police and the institutional racism that has been rife there for many, many years. And I know you've worked with the police before, uh, Rosemary. So can you can you tell me a bit about your thoughts on on why nothing seems to change in that in that organisation? I think it's um, similar to I would have said in terms of the church, there are good people in both institutions doing good work, white and black. But unless you absolutely locate the sense of responsibility and authority at the top, I firmly believe that there needs to be full repentance at the top. And then we can start to see how that works its way, ripples through the institution. So while Sir Mark Rowley has good intentions, and I have met him, and I don't doubt his good intentions. If he continues to say that the Metropolitan Police is not institutionally racist, he has given a lie to the experiences of so many people within and out with the institution. I think you need to you need to repent of it. You need to recognize it. It is not you personally. It's an it's the institution, and you need to grapple with that. And then really, really deeply engage with it. The same way they're trying to work with misogyny and the way in which women are so poorly treated inside and outside the institution. It's the same way that they have to grapple with this. I think people get scared of saying, oh, I don't want to say we're racist because it says something about us. No, actually, we have to just ante up. We have to say it. I think Baroness Lawrence has said this. Unless you actually name it, If you don't name it, you cannot deal with it. And I think that once they start to name it, they will start to live it. And it will not be immediate. It will be like we're dealing with in the church, but it will show how they can also go from lament to action. Yeah, on this on this issue of naming it, I think that's really interesting because there's been this whole controversy of the weekend. I don't know if you saw it with Diane Abbott. Yes. But this whole idea around um, naming exactly what racism is, and she's been uh, she's been suspended from the Labour Party because she's sort of suggested that racism doesn't really apply to sort of Jewish people, to Irish people, and she had sort of several different categories. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on on that. Well, just a quick comment. Matthew Ryder has written, a, I think, a, a marvelous piece on on this, and it can be found offline, where he talks about. Racism, as I started to discuss with you, came out of a binary, out of chattel slavery. That's where the word racism started to come into being, when we started to get these concepts of whiteness and blackness, which were not there previously. And that's what they describe. What Matthew is saying is anti-Semitism describes what happens to Jewish people, because we know that there are some Jewish people who are very much black by what we define as black. Um, brown by what we define as brown and white by what we define as white so having this this kind of global title racism doesn't quite fit onto it because there are too many complexities within it and I think we need to name things as they are so Islamophobia is Islamophobia 
it will have elements of racism in there as well, as does um, uh, anti-Semitism have elements of racism. But I certainly know that um, there are folk um, from the, the Jewish diaspora who also face racism within the Jewish tradition. So that's why I'm saying it's so complex. For her to have kind of just lumped it all together and talked about hair colour was absolutely incorrect. But I think what we do have to recognise is that they have uh, different trajectories and different impacts. And if we try to put them all together, we won't really deal with them with the complexity that we know um, is, exists. So that's mm. what I would offer to you. Mm. It, it is elements of racism. But I think with Jewish um, um, people, they suffer from anti-Semitism. And that's what we have to deal with. And if mm. there are elements of racism in that, let's deal with that too. But it is anti-Semitism mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we need to be addressing. It sounds like you sort of broadly agree with what she's saying, you know, not the specifics of how she said it, but broadly the the, the broader brushstrokes of, of her point. Do you think that um, it was wrong for Labour to remove the whip from her? I can't speak to the Labour Party. I refuse to do so. But what I would say is I think the same way as I said earlier, we need to have... Um, conversations that help us that we have to have learning and then we have to have understanding and then we have to have um that has to inform our actions i think if we respond very quickly and people misspeak quite often or they they can't quite formulate the way in which they would want to say things i think how she's formulated it is incorrect but i think the the question that she was trying to address is right and i think What we could easily do is now say she was wrong. We're not going to address it. It's all about this. It's all about that. And we're not going to deal with the complexity. So I do think she was right to raise it as as an issue about the difference where people um, experience marginalization in our society. Um, But she was wrong to just equate it with something which is potentially ephemeral because people change their hair color all the time you know you might be ginger today or blonde tomorrow or whatever that's not that's not sufficient what we've got to look at is the reality of people's lives the way the world works to marginalize them as I said earlier and work specifically on those aspects of marginalization which is part of the bigger picture of how humanity spends its time just finally what could the Premier family be praying for for you specifically in your work and life? I, that I seek God's wisdom in all that I do. That I have uh, Jesus always, not the knowledge that Jesus is walking with me and that I do nothing from my own um, ego or strength, but that I stand on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Thank you, Bishop Rosemary. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you today. So it's my pleasure as well. And thank you very much. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine. <laughs>